Hello, hello. Just a friendly reminder to sign up for the Major Doma Media Discord channel at majordomamedia.com. And there's a link to join our community. A lot of fun, a lot of good insight to cooking, to eating better, etc. cetera. Uh, also, all things Momofuku, shop.momofuku for your pantry items. And you can get our pantry items and noodles at places like Target and Whole Foods Nationwide. Uh, shout out to Athletic Brew. Uh, I, I drink a lot of it, and I, there was a nice article written about people that are not necessarily sober, but are sort of like sober flex. And uh, if you haven't seen it at your grocery store, um, it's just a great beverage, even if you're not even into drinking beer. It's a delicious beverage. And the last plug that I have is uh, I, I, I've joined Acre Ventures. Uh, you had Lucas Mann on uh, the podcast a couple months ago where Chris Ying and I interviewed him. Just a reminder that if you have anybody that is starting a food company of any kind or is in the process of fundraising, you can send me an email at dave at acre.vc. That's dave at acre.vc. Um, and happy to find out more. So let me know what's going on there. And uh, now on to the show. Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. It gives you up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase. It's real cash that never expires or loses value. Apply for Apple Card in the Wallet app on iPhone. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Daily cash is available via Apple Cash Card. Issued by Green Dot Bank, member FDIC, or as a statement credit. Terms and more at AppleCard.com. This episode is brought to you by Vital Farms. No matter how you like your eggs scrambled, over easy, or sunny side up, the people at Vital Farms believe in one thing, keeping it bullshit free. That's why their pasture-raised eggs come from hens who each have over 108 square feet of space to roam and forage all year round. So you can spend less time questioning your food and more time enjoying it. Look for Vital Farms in your grocery store and learn more at vitalfarms.com. Vital Farms, keeping it bullshit free. Welcome to the Dave Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network. Thanks, y'all, Latino. As always, again, you have me solo today. Maybe Jordan, our great producer uh, extraordinaire, might help out here or there. But Chris Yang is in the, he's moving and it's his birthday. By the time this comes out, he will be, how old, Jordan? He'll be 40 years old. I think he's 40. This is the big four zero coming up. Yeah. He looks, you know, he's one of those Asians that looks way older than he actually is. Most Asian people seem to have be younger. Chris, it looks, honestly, he looks like he's 30, 40, 44, 45. That's what I think. But uh, all jokes aside, happy birthday, big guy. Um, and, and with the move. So uh, big shout out to Chris Ying, the Fellowship of the Ying. Hope you're having a good one. And um, Noel is still around. She's just, we just have a lot of things going on behind the scenes. We have a lot that we are, that we want to talk about, but we just can't get there quite yet, but very soon. And Noelle is instrumental in a lot of these things behind the scenes. We get a lot of inbounds about cooking and, 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 and tips like that. So I'm going to give you some of those. This is going to be a crazy conversation, but we'll get there. But cooking tip number one, the pork butt, the pork shoulder, aka the Boston butt. Sometimes it is 
tied up. Sometimes it is with the bone in. It has like a T-bone, like joint bone in it. Um, try to always get it with the bone in, but if you can't, that's okay. If you happen to get it boneless, this is this is the the recommendation I have because if you get a bone in, I, I think it's it's a little bit difficult to cut around that bone. And if if you are lucky enough, just just slow roast that whole thing, uh, or you can cut it in half so you can get the the bone in section and the boneless section. But I find that more and more in the grocery stores, I'm seeing that it's boneless. The reason I like the pork butt, besides you know uh, we've cooked a lot of it at Momofuku, we we, we would slow roast it and 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 confit it and Benton's bacon and pork belly fat that we started off at Noodle Bar and it would basically be confit pork butt and we shred that and we still put that on our ramen today. We um, turned it into uh, an Americanized version of the bosam, uh, the modam bosam, which is w- with pork belly traditionally and we changed it so it's pork shoulder. That's, I think, quite well known. And, you know, we serve time and time again here and there uh, shoulder sticks. And I, I served this at my home the other day and I had a friend over and I sliced some pork butt thinly and I grilled it and I put some simple gochujang marinade and it was a little, little spicy, but it was probably cut like a quarter inch thick and they took a bite and they thought it was delicious. But the one caveat to this is it's quite chewy to them. And no matter how long you marinate it, a pork butt steak, a shoulder steak, I think is an interesting conversation to have because this is really about chewiness. We've talked about this in Ugly Delicious. A lot of the chewiness, the textural elements change from culture to culture wherever you are in the world. And I find that a shoulder steak is is one of those things that divides people. I think almost unanimously people find it to be flavorful because of all the sinew, muscle fiber, fat. But if you cook it like a steak, you're not cooking it long enough where you're breaking down those structures. So that's how you you get something that's braised or slow roasted where it falls off the bone. And particularly Korean culture and and few other places where, you know, if you're cooking, say, Korean barbecue, you're you're actually eating short rib that's been marinated. So there's a tenderizing process there. But a lot of times, you know, there's a chewiness to it. And I don't know if that's the most uh, appealing word, but I feel like we need to start eating more things that are chewy. This is just my opinion on this. I guess this is an opinion as fact, a short version. And and I would like to see more shoulder steaks on menus because number one, it's affordable. Number two, I'm sort of tired of eating sort of toothless, no texture meat in general. Uh, falling off the bone is is just, it is just overcooked. And this is the first time my friend had ever tasted a, you know, it was, it was a well-done piece of meat. You know, it wasn't medium rare. It was, it was beautiful. It was nice, but it was the first time they tasted something that was delicious, but also had chew. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but I also think it's a cultural thing. Um, and I just don't know if, if American culture has yet embraced chewing things, they want things very soft as if you had dentures or something. So that's what I'm going to start doing. I think one of the issues is shaving it or slicing it as thinly as possible. But if you have a slicer or if you go to an Asian market, you can get super thin, almost paper thin slices of pork butt. And I, I recommend doing that if you can find that. But it, it is more than one way 
of cooking a pork, but it doesn't always have to be slow roasted. You can marinate it. It will tenderize it to a certain degree, but at the, there, there, it's never going to lose that, that chew. There are different breeds of pig where you will have it more tender because of the fat in it and the marbling. Um, and this is, wasn't one of those. This was just an organic pork butt that I had, and it wasn't particularly well marbled. And it wasn't a specific heirloom of pig, but I just never see the shoulder steak enough. And I'm seeing it uh, a little bit more on at grocery store shelves, and I just don't know if people know what to do with it. So treat it like a steak, salt and pepper, or a Momo Saver salt, and just grill it. I would broil it as well, and and and, and that's it. It's very, very good. Another, I wanted to give a, um, a, a quick shout out to uh, Smoke Queen. There was a pop-up. Uh, she did these beautiful Peking ducks that were smoked uh, with the Momo team, the Major Domo team, excuse me, with, with Jude and the whole Major Domo team. And it got me thinking because I talked about G-Fong. I talked about Duck House. And I think that you're seeing this more and more. I know Adam Perry Lang just did one with Mei Lin and they did smoked ducks. I think you're going to start seeing this as a trend more and more, right? A reinvention of the Peking duck or slash roasted duck. Yes, it's one of my favorite things, but I do love duck in general. It is one of my, probably my favorite protein to work with because it's so versatile. And I'm thinking you're going to see a renaissance of not peaking duck in the traditional sense, but smoked ducks and the, this version of a, a, you know, almost like a cold smoked duck. So you can probably put it in a 140 to 180 degree uh, smoker, you know, before you put a smoker, you might, you might blanch it. You're trying to render out as much fat as possible. And I'm, I, I'm, I'm seeing this It's something we, we messed around with a, a long time ago. We've served a lot of duck at Momofuku, but never never attempted to put it on the menu as a smoked duck. And I think the next couple of years, you're going to see a lot more smoked ducks, smoked peaking ducks on the menu as a large format option. And I'm all for that. Also, you know, we're, we're doing a lot of parent dad content. We'll do a dad's uh, podcast soon enough with Chris. But I just want to share with you that there has been one thing that I've been cooking quite a bit uh, as of late, because now Gus is is uh, of an age where he's eating more solid foods and Hugo is now eating things that we make. Not always, but it has to be specific kinds of food. So I'm trying to make foods that everyone can eat in my family. So I don't have to make three different meals for dinner or lunch. And there's a dish that I don't know if a lot of people are familiar with. If you're not Korean, you may see it in some modern Korean restaurants. And the dish is called Changjorim, J-A-N-G-J-O-R-I-M, Jorim, J-O-R-I-M. The jorim is is a is a cooking technique, Korean cooking technique, where I think it's best described. Where it's it's um, it's not really braised, but you're cooking something in a piece of liquid where it's like a glaçage. I don't even know if that's going to make any sense. I give you one cooking term in Korean, and I (laughs) I give you a French cooking term to describe it. So that doesn't help you so much. Um, But basically, you're you're cooking in that liquid, and you're trying to boil it down so it glazes in that solution. It's not sticky. There's still enough liquid, but it's it's also a, a way of preserving. At least that's how my family always had it. And, and my dad grew up eating changjorim. So it is really a tough cut of meat, usually a brisket or flank steak, or um, I've seen it with a variety of different cuts. A short rib is clearly usually reserved for the provenance of of kalbi, what I've been cooking a lot with is chuck roast, and I'm a big fan of chuck roast in general. We talk a lot about it in our 
the last book that we came out, uh, uh, Cooking at Home, on Chuck Roast in the mid portion of the of the of the chuck is a is a lot of fat and sinew. You can cut around that, and for the most part, your yield is is like ninety percent, which is way better than a lot of the other cuts. I don't love I, brisket. I'm going to reserve for smoking or making some kind of soup, and and I don't love flank steak for. Um, Changjirim. My late mom loved making changjirim with flank steak, but earlier on in her life, it was usually brisket. Past couple of years, I've been making it mostly with chuck, and uh, I think it comes out better because it is a little bit more like short rib, in my opinion. And if you wonder what changjirim is, the simple recipe is this, and you may find a different. If you go online, I'm sure you're going to find it where it's a it's a a recipe with um, kombu or uh, gar. I mean, there's definitely garlic. It's for for the most part. I just ignore all of that. And my mom used to make it with uh, kombu dashi, so she'd start with the the kelp as the the liquid. And I also don't do this step. A lot of recipes, including my mom, they would degorge. They would um, soak the meat in the water to remove some of the impurities in the blood. I don't understand that, and I don't do that because you can remove the impurities as it's cooking, and you can skim it out, skim out the scum. So I don't bother with that process. So you you take some cut of meat like a chuck roast and you cut it into bite-sized portions and i just cover it with some water soy sauce and sugar it should be enough so, um, soy and sugar where it tastes a little bit like a diluted teriyaki sauce something like that i put cracked black pepper and i put a few cloves of garlic and that's that and i will let that simmer without a lid uh, for about 30, 40 minutes, then I'll put on a lid and I'll let that cook down for another hour. And then I'll take off the lid and let that reduce down by, you know, half at least for another 30 minutes. So all in, you're looking at two to two and a half hours, all in the stovetop. And you get this beautiful, salty, sweet, again, chewy panchan, panchan being the, the, the Korean dishes that hit tables uh, that you eat with rice. I grew up eating this as many Korean kids have grown up eating this because one of the things it's so um, the environment is so uh, shell stable because of the salt content that a lot of times it's room temperature and it's something that could be stored for a while. Sometimes it's served with eggs and chili pepper, like a soy sauce eggs. And there's different kinds of jorim. You can get it with potatoes. You can get it with eggs. You can get it with different kinds of fish. This is probably the most popular version and it's a dish that you will never really see at Korean restaurants. You might see it occasionally as panchan at a Korean barbecue restaurant. But for the most part, this dish is a provenance of, of home. And I don't know how this combination happened, but inevitably every Korean person I know grew up eating it with rice that was mixed with melted butter or just a pat of butter. And you eat it with the, the, the braised beef, the simmered beef, and some of the the beautiful sauce that's with it. It's super simple. It's extremely delicious. And oftentimes, if you see it at a restaurant, it's been pulled or shredded and it's been served room temperature or cold. That's fine. I just prefer to have it a little bit warm where it makes it more soft and less tough and less like beef jerky. So if you've never had changjirin before, please try it. If you've never made it before, it is legitimately one of the simplest goddamn things you can make. It's literally, my recipe is as good as any. I really think that water, soy, some kind of sugar and garlic, you can omit the black pepper if you want. And just finding that ratio to get that right consistency of flavor 
that's what's going to make a humble piece of meat like the chuck roast taste like a million bucks. It's also the one guarantee I have now that my sons will both eat the same kind of protein. So I'll chop it up very thinly and I'll try to wash out some of the the sauce for Gus. And then Hugo eats that with rice and butter, just like I did. And just like my wife and just like just about every Korean person I know growing up, that was one of their go-to staples. So I wanted to share that with you. And it's something that I know many people may not know. I think I can't remember which Korean restaurant in in, in uh, New York started serving Changjirim. And I, I know that uh, I've had conversations with other chefs. I don't understand why it's not served as a main course, as a main dish, because I think that it could be. It's just a re- reformulating or reformatting how you look at that dish, because it's not just a, a uh, sort of a side dish served with rice, not in my opinion. So I know a few months back, we said we were going to do like a top five, top 10 of grocery store rotisserie chicken. I think I already have my winner and I, it, it's an unfortunately not a national chain, but I think that Sprouts has the best rotisserie chicken out of all the grocery stores. I believe that Costco would win if you took it to vote because you can't beat that price. And this isn't a debate uh, or conversation about the, 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 the efficacy of a, of a $6 or cheaper uh, rotisserie chicken. Um, that is a whole nother conversation that I don't think I'm prepared to have a conversation about, but just talking on the merits of the best grocery store rotisserie chicken, I think they're all okay. They're all good sources of protein for people. It's a good affordable meal for people, but it is something that I've, I've been a sucker for for many years. Uh, my mom used to take me to Boston Market when it first opened up in Vienna, and I just fell in love with it. I just thought it was delicious. Anytime there was a rotisserie chicken, it was great. And when we were able to get a first rotisserie oven at Sambar, I was overjoyed because I love the technology. Clearly, uh, so much that we did a whole episode on Ugly Delicious about the vertical spit, which is basically a, 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 some kind of rotisserie technology just done the other way. But I, I love there's something romantic about it for me, just, just the slow basting of of the chicken, the ease. It's actually not that easy to do, the prep of it, but the cooking of it is easy. The cleaning of it is a pain in the ass, but I've had rotisserie chicken anywhere. If I'm not getting a fried chicken uh, or something like that at a grocery store, I, I'm more often than not going to definitely at least try their, fried, uh, their, their um, rotisserie chicken offerings. And in California right now, I think between uh, Trader Joe's doesn't have rotisserie chicken, Whole Foods, Vons, Ralph's, Bristol Farms, and um, and uh, and Sprouts. I think Sprouts of that five, that group of five, is the best of the bunch. And I'm sure there may be other smaller grocery store chains, but by accident, one time I got the unseasoned rotisserie chicken. That's just no good. That's never going to be good. But they have a herb, a barbecue, and I just found out a hatch chili rotisserie chicken. It is delicious. It really is so good. Um, my whole family agrees. But the one thing I found with Sprouts uh, is not all the locations are as good. They're not bad. They're all good. And I'll be honest, almost all rotisserie chicken, even the one that is sitting out there all day and is on a discounted price at like 9.55 p.m. is good. I mean, they're just, to me, I will always eat rotisserie chicken, just like I'll always eat a fried chicken nugget or fried chicken finger or something like that. But 
the Sprouts Alhambra rotisserie chicken is, in my opinion, for whatever reason, head and shoulders above everything else. So this isn't very useful for anyone that doesn't live in Los Angeles and extremely unuseful, even if you do live in Los Angeles, because no one from the West Side is going to go shop and get a, a, a Sprouts rotisserie chicken in Alhambra location but I, I just wanted to tell you it is but this is something that i'm going to take serious we're going to get this organized and we're going to get a, a real consensus here all right doubt consensus but we're going to get real input from people on discord people listening what do you think the best rotisserie fried not rotisserie fried chicken although that would be an interesting thing and i've never done that best rotisserie chicken is i'm venturing to guess that people would always say costco um, but out of the grocery stores, who's got the best rotisserie chicken? Let's let's have that discussion. Um, the other thing I wanted to talk about, um, because I was unpacking a lot of different things when I was home alone. Now that my family's back, in terms of my eating habits, the one thing that I I wanted to eat but I didn't eat, and I thought that I would, was uh, Sichuan food. I didn't eat any Sichuan food. And I think a lot of that is because my kids can't eat it right now. And, um, who I, I just don't want to eat something that no one else can eat. And there's, there's some great Sichuan restaurants near me, uh, Chengdu taste, um, Sichuan impression, the list goes on and on, but also Sichuan food is really good. It's, it's probably the best version of Chinese cooking and of all the regions I think available in, 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 in not every city, but certainly on, in New York and Los Angeles. Um, it's so good. It's so good right now. New York has so many great Sichuan restaurants and we should do a whole discussion of that and note to self, we will about where to eat Sichuan food, but I didn't eat, I haven't had Mapu Tofu. It's what I crave. It's one of my favorite things to eat. I haven't had it. I wanted to get, you know, all of my Sichuan favorites from Dan Dan noodles to the cold chicken to all kinds of things that I normally have eaten, but I haven't done it. And I don't know if it's because of my, my kids or the fact that people aren't eating spicy food in my family, or is it because I'm moving out of a phase of eating Mapu tofu with rice and it's a sad thing, but that kind of craving has been replaced with, with, with the uh, French fries. I, I don't know what's been going on here, but like, my craving for mapu tofu was the, how I feel about eating French fries right now as a guilty, indulgent pleasure. Not that mapu tofu is, but that kind of thing that I want to eat. I have more of a craving for French fries than ever before. And it got me thinking that we sh I just wanted to do a quick rundown of what I think are the best fast food French fries. I don't want to talk about restaurants. I don't want to talk about that because I do believe Major Domo has the best French fry uh, around. Uh, Bill Simmons gave me a challenge a few years back when we opened and we put it on the menu and it's the biggest pain in the ass French fry that's ever been made. It takes like three days. It's a triple fry. There's a couple other ingredients that help with the drying process and setting the starch, but it's a pain in the ass. And there's plenty of other restaurants in America, in the world that make great, great French fries. I'm specifically talking about fast food French fries. And it is a craving that I have because in a land of fast food, everywhere I drive, I'm thinking to myself, let me just get an order of French fries. God damn it. What's wrong with me? This is literally what I think about every time I'm driving is French fries. I've never had this goddamn urge. It's like a pregnancy urge almost. So um, I, I wanted to give you my brief rundown 
And we'll probably hear from Chris and Noel, and we'll hear from everyone in our Discord channel and just in general uh, what what your thoughts are. But I'm going to give you my, I'm going to break it down by tiers, much like Bill Simmons does his tier of uh, uh, of tradable NBA players and or his book of basketball tier of basketball players. So I'm gonna I'm gonna go reverse order tier five, and I broke this down. I wrote this out. Tier five, I'm gonna put the curly fries. I'm gonna put things that uh, are maybe steak fries or things that are not the traditional fry for me. Uh, Tier four, that is. The Chick-fil-A waffle fry, I'm going to say is tier four. And tier four is not good. It is the kind of tier of food that you eat because you have to. The best example is the In-N-Out French fry. That is tier four. You get it because you have to get it and there's nothing else to really get. Same thing if you go to Chick-fil-A. Uh, besides the the, the 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 other issues with Chick-fil-A, the, one of the issues is the waffle fry. Even though I know that some of our restaurants make waffle fries, it's not like my cup of tea. I just don't like it. KFCs, um, they have a crispy fry or is it like the original new crispy fry? It's just okay. I think there's a bunch of curly fries. Curly fries to me in general are just non-starters. There's the jack-in-the-box the Arby's, the Carl's Jr.'s. A lot of places have normal fries, but they also have curly fries that are seasoned. Any kind of seasoned fry is out for me. I I just can't get down with that at all. Um, I also don't love the Burger King French fry. Um, It's been a couple years since I, maybe more than a couple years, but the last time I had it, they did a big campaign about the French fry. Um, And I just don't see a lot of Burger Kings where I'm at in LA. I just, I, I never warmed to it, but I do know that people like it. And they had a new fry that was like a, 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 like a like a like a new Coke type of thing. It's just not my cup of tea. I don't like it. Uh, again, anything that's seasoned or has some kind of extra crispy kind of element, it's not for me. Waffle fries, not for me. I'm always shocked still that when the ringer first started out, they the first thing they did, one of the first thing they did was do the the best fast food items in the country and fucking Chick-fil-A waffle fries won the whole goddamn thing. Insane to me. Um, and and yeah, it's like the in and out Tier four is like the in and out disappointment. It's like there's nothing else to get. And uh, there's there's also a division. There are people that are extremely emphatically enthusiastic about something, whether it's a curly fry at Jack in the Box or, you know, the waffle fry Chick-fil-A, people that are extremely passionate about it. And I, I just happen to not agree with them. And I think that's tier four. The tier three, it, 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 it's, it's pretty much the crinkle cut. Anything that's a crinkle, crinkle cut French fry. I know Del Taco has one. Uh, I don't know if they still do, but it's been a while. I, I've definitely had a crinkle cut at Del Taco. Um, Shake Shack is, to me, what really popularized. Um, the the crinkle cut uh i'd also i just wish there was more like cottage fries if you're from new york and brooklyn there's rolling roasters and they have cottage fries for a brief couple years there was a rolling roasters in the east village with a roast beef sandwiches it was sublime i love that fucking place um that would i would also put in tier three it's stuff that is shaped it's shaped funny and i'd even put anything that was a tater tot but you know tier three really to me only has one title it's the shake shack it's fine. It's good. You can dip it in cheese sauce, whatever. But I am not a fan of crinkle cut French fries, any kind of geometric shape. That's just not mine. And I'm, I'm not going to list 
bunch. I'm sure Arby's. I know that Del Taco does. Maybe there's a handful of others. Clearly, there are um, in the tier three bucket of geometric shapes a la Shake Shack. I just want people to know in this list, I have never still I have never eaten at a Sonic or Red Robin. I don't I don't know. I've never been to a Sonic. I've never been to a Red Robin and I've never had their French fries. But I feel like for the most part, I've been to most fast food chains in America. I clearly have missed some, but um, I haven't been to a Sonic or Red Robin tier two. I'm going to put into the thick French fry, the thicker French fry. Um, and I would put Wendy's to me, the, 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 the Wendy's French fry, which people love are a little bit thicker than the tier one, which we'll get into the tier two French fry, AKA Wendy's thicker. It's like maybe the size of your index finger type of thing. Not a steak fry, not a thin thing, thin French fry. Um, I believe Roy Rogers. I don't even know if Roy Rogers is still around anymore. But Roy Rogers has one. I think that Burger King has a thicker fry because they they always change their fry. Um, it's just not what I want. It's just not what I want. It's 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 what I want is a thin fry. I want a frozen thin fry and not a shoestring fry because shoestring fries are a lie. They're a lie. They're an optical illusion to sell you, you know, uh, a lot. I, I'm mostly concerned with the tier one French fry and those are the thin frozen fries and um, there's one mention in the tier one group that doesn't do frozen and i think everyone knows what that is to me burgerville has a great french fry that's thin and i do love burgerville's shakes even though we're not talking about shakes burgerville's just a great chain in general i make fun of whataburger ketchup because i don't understand it the cult-like religion but their french fries are great their french fries are very similar to the mcdonald's french fry Five guys are in the tier one because it's a great, great French fry. It's a freshly cut fry, but they cook it in peanut oil. And it's it's what the In-N-Out French fry could be. Uh, I'm not saying it's the best because it can be hit and miss, but it's a good French fry. And it reminds me of getting something, say, Thrasher's in Ocean City, Maryland, which is a thicker French fry. And I am not into vinegar on French fry at all. That's just dumb. Why would you want something crispy? There are things that you want crispy that get soggy like General Tso's chicken, but not your fucking French fry. To me, after all these years, and maybe because it's nostalgia, the, the, the premier French fry is the McDonald's French fry. And again, I don't want anyone talking about all the different restaurants that have great French fries. I've heard the Four Seasons. I've heard this hotel. I know there's places in Maine. There's places in Chicago. I've never had Portillo's. People have told me that Portillo's not only has great hot dogs, but they love the French fry. I've never had that. I'm missing places. I'm just giving you my, it's my fucking podcast. I'm telling you that I can't condone anything really about McDonald's, but I can say that I crave their French fry the most. So this is about craveability, what I would want to eat. And I think about McDonald's French fries more than any other French fry. By far. And um, I can't verify it, but you know, I believe up until recently, maybe they're still doing it. Uh, Japan was the last place that you could still get French fries cooked in beef tallow. If you haven't listened to that Malcolm Gladwell Revisionist History podcast, you should do so, where they're talking about saturated fats and cottonseed oil and the fact that one person basically changed our entire way of eating French fries because of, you know, uh, false news, really. Um, 
Cooking French fries in animal fat is delicious. It is extremely delicious. Duck fat, beef fat. Um, and uh, I, I, I don't know, but I, I think when I was living in Japan, because they taste very different, one of the first times, um, one of the meals that I could eat that wasn't Japanese, that I could eat affordably, was McDonald's. And, and I ate a lot of McDonald's living in Japan, believe it or not, uh, the second time I lived there. So um, I just love the French fries there. And, and I can love them and not love anything else about Mickey D's. But um, I can be honest that I crave the shit out of the French fries. Even when it's not salted right, I'll still eat it. Uh, but I would say overall, their frozen French fry, the thin version, that to me is the platonic ideal of a fast food french fry you know tier four is shit that you have to eat i don't crave tier three is it's good but i don't really want it tier two is i'm happy and and wendy's is a good fry it's a good fry anything that's a good fry but i'm not i didn't know it's not like i'm going there for it when i lived in asia i think that um again i could be wrong but just having lived there and it's been a long time most people would assume places like McDonald's weren't even for the hamburgers. It was about their sauce serve and milkshakes and their French fries. That's what people crave the most. Um, and and I'm telling you, man, like I'm a sucker for their fucking French fry. No, this podcast is not presented to you by McDonald's. But um, if I had to do that list of the most craveable, what I think is the best fast food item that is a French fry potato thing. I'm definitely going with McDonald's and it pains me to say that, but I can't think of another fucking thing that I would want more. It's like I don't crave Whataburger. I don't crave Burgerville unless I'm there. McDonald's happened to be omnipresent, so I, I tend to crave it because I see it all the time. Do I eat it? Very, very rarely. Uh, maybe once or twice a year do I do that. Um, but you know, it's, it, it is a, one of those special things. And I, I can just hear people criticize. I can't believe we're talking about McDonald's. I'm like, come on. Like, it is what it is. Just let's get over ourselves a little bit. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. I'm just drinking a Diet Dr. Pepper right now. I, I, I'm drinking a lot of Diet Dr. Pepper right now. Uh, I don't know why I bought it. I haven't had it really in many years. When we opened up Sambar in 2006, we had four beverages. We had 
OB beer. Uh, or, uh, we had OB, or then it switched to the Orion beer, Diet Dr. Pepper, regular Dr. Pepper, and Poland Spring Water. That's all that we had. And, uh, you know, I think it paired really well with food. I'm a big fan of Dr. Pepper, but other than that, I can't tell you. So I don't even know what compelled me to, to get a case of Diet Dr. Pepper. So I am drinking it as fast as possible. So Hugo doesn't get a taste of it. Uh, and I'm telling him that it's medicine. But yeah, I don't even know why I share that with you, but I took a big old sip of it. But I want to talk at a later podcast to elaborate more about uh, the, the, the episode we had with Ivan Orkin and Chris Ying and the you know, uh, the, the comparison to Franz Ferdinand uh, getting assassinated. And that was the 2015 Noma uh, live broadcast and what that means to the creative fields. And, you know, just reading through the Discord channel, I feel that there's a lot more to flesh out. So maybe we won't just talk to food people. We'll talk to people in other creative fields and see what they think and how they are navigating this sort of free-for-all of um, creative expression in a world where, Everything is known instantly, all the time. Access to information and 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 how that sort of is a is a boon, and also the bane of people's existence. The other sort of second angle that I'm thinking about as to how I could remedy this is encourage more people, including myself, to take more risks creatively. That sounds easy, but it's extremely hard to do, and. You know, it's, 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 this is going to be a, a extreme leap of thought and logic. When I watched Top Gun, putting Tom Cruise and Scientology aside, I felt so good. And it's been a pretty fucking hard year. Lots of different things happening in my life. And, and with work, there was just, I was just not in a moment. And I watched it with my wife. It was the second movie we've seen in three three years uh, because of the pandemic. And I thought it was a great movie. I dare say it was a perfect movie. It made me laugh. I almost cried. It made me think about things. It was nostalgic. It, it was a whole range of emotions. And it was also a movie that, again, when I say everybody, not everybody's going to love it, but I, I would say a majority of people that watch it are probably going to like it. That's fucking hard to do, to do that kind of populist movie and to have some, some angle where everybody can relate to it to some degree. Very hard to do. And I did say this, and I don't know if I said this on the pod. I was like, I wanted to make food like this. I want to make food. I want to eat food like this. And I know this sounds crazy, but I kept on thinking about that for myself, the kinds of restaurants that might be. Could I make a restaurant that's like Top Gun? Could I? Um, it, what restaurant out there is like type Top Gun? There, there are, and I don't know if I'll get into that right now because it's a little bit too esoteric and abstract for me to even articulate. So I'm going to lose you with a, another jump in logic. Moving from Top Gun to uh, Ode to Joy, um, Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, the Fifth Movement. And if you haven't listened to it, go listen to it right now. Go listen to Ode to Joy. That music itself, I find to be, you know, not a surprise because so many people in the world of history has loved it. it, it it's fucking inspiring. It, 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 in a lot of ways, it makes me feel like watching Top Gun in a completely different medium. And there's a quote, and I don't even know if I, I've, I've written about this before, but I think about it a lot. 
and it's in <coughs> Birth of Tragedy by Nietzsche, you know, uh, where he's saying, transfer Beethoven's Hymn to Joyce, aka Ode to Joy, the Ninth Symphony, into a painting. Let your imagination conceive the multitude bowing into the dust, awestruck. Then you will approach the Dionysian. And I, I'm not going to get into the Apollonian Dionysian sort of dialect here, but what he's basically trying to say with the Dionysian is, you know, to marvel in ecstasy, to feel fulfillment, to have your emotions at such a range, right, from high to low, to be moved in such a way that you are just lost. You don't know what's going on. Your whole worldview has changed. You are drunk. You're, you don't have to physically be drunk because clearly that's what Dionysian sort of was all about too, revelry. But, you know, the, the other end of that is suffering. You earn the right to get that. It is a little bit more Dionysian, I guess. But it's something that I think about because I've always used this metric as to how I want my food to be tasted. You are dining with somebody, your companion, your best friend. You may have not seen them in 20 years. I know I've talked about this before. And you're eating something. And this is what I tell cooks. You know, it was either this or making food in the rain or making food that is so good that people would wait in the rain for three hours to eat. But this is a, a more easier, I think, thing to understand, not just for cooks, but for anybody uh, that eats. So you're you're catching up with a long lost friend after 20 years or whatever, some, some long amount of time and you're eating something and the food is so good that you're not talking to your friend. You're not even looking at your friend. You're just dumbstruck in awe of what is happening in your mind and your palate and your, 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 your gut, right? You can't even fucking comprehend what the fuck has happened. Because the food moved you to that point that you have forgotten the person that's in front of you. There is no talking. It is this whole moment that's happening in your mind. I have had that. I don't know if a lot of people have had that, but you taste something and it moves you and you're like, what the fuck is happening? And it doesn't always have to be the food. It'd be kind of the restaurant. But it's also like, I think the intent of the restaurant, the intent of what is trying to be made is also important. So it's not just, you know, the homogenized creativity that's happening where people are making the same thing. And I think that is also what's sort of killing hospitality in a, in a certain way. And we're all guilty of that, both as consumers and as creatives. I'm saying this as more of, man, are we, some of the shared data and, and social media is causing us to create the same intention. And I think part of what food is as art, and that's what I believe it can be, is the intent, right? It doesn't always have to be the most delicious thing in the world. It could be the intent of like what is happening and what is trying to be said that can knock you on your ass. And I'm thinking the last time I felt that way was literally eating it Horn Barbecue in Oakland, in West Oakland, I mean, like, this is unbelievably delicious food, as good as any barbecue that's being made. But the statement of what was being said by Matt and the team, the location with the, the junkyard recycling plant, 
right behind me. That that is the terroir. That was like, this is fucking unreal. This takes balls. This takes vision. This takes grit. This takes determination. You taste that in the restaurant. You see that in the restaurant. You see a dream happening, being built brick by brick. And it got me thinking about more chefs, maybe not trying to be like Pierre Gagnier. You know, he really well-known chef. And I don't, the only reason I'm bringing him up is I admire the fucking balls on him. The, 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 the risk taking he has, because there are a few chefs I think of that has such a polarizing sort of output. He's one of the greatest chefs Francis has ever produced. Don't get me wrong. Extremely amazing man, a real hero of mine. And I've studied a lot of what he's done and he's just the best, but what he does is he's always trying to create. He's always trying to push the envelope. He's always trying to do something new. He's trying to get a better understanding of it. And he's just not one of these bands that always plays the greatest hits. At least when I was in, in the moment of trying to understand everything Gagnier did. And there are people that I know that will say the best meal they ever had was at a Pierre Gagnier's restaurant. The best meal. And I was like, please tell me more. And they'll say two out of the 10 dishes Eight of the 10 dishes were really bad, but those two that were good changed their lives, changed their worldview type of shit. That, that's, that's a level of risk-taking that, you know, you're following your own intuition. You're following your own muse. You're, you're, you're not following the guidance of rational thought, what culture is sort of imposing on us to do, or what is most sensible and most efficient. It's swinging for the fences. You're going for home runs. I, I, I think about that a lot because, you know, if you think about it, most people probably would want to play it a little bit more safe. Not everyone's going to do this. I understand that. It's not for everybody, but it is extremely re- rewarding, enriching for a diner or from someone that's looking from the outside in about how that gets done. And, you know, recently, uh, Anna Jack Tai just got recognized by the Los Angeles Times uh, for its restaurant of the year. I mean, I love this shit because it's about celebrating the things that are absurd, doing things that you're not supposed to do in the traditional sense, breaking the status quo and creating on your own terms with what you need to do. That's a restaurant that's been around for, I think, 41 years. Um, And it was a wonderful meal. And a lot of it was on the outside. It's a restaurant that has a pulse. It's probably not scalable in any meaningful way. And it's Taco Tuesdays. It's everything's a theme night. It doesn't make any sense. It's a Thai restaurant in Sherman Oaks that's been around for years. That is the local Thai restaurant for a lot of people. And the son now is making food with his team. A lot of it outdoors on the grill was created because of the pandemic, clearly. And it's got a natural wine list. I think um, in some ways it's the the... This, the, this just some new version of how we're going to eat, you know, and I, I guarantee you we're going to see people trying to copy Anajectai. You just are. You can't copy what they're doing, but you should copy what they were trying to do, which was doing something that made no fucking sense in the world. Okay. Having an extensive natural wine list with a Taco Tuesday and theme nights all together. 
You know, like it doesn't make it. It also doesn't make sense. Like the first mission Chinese with Anthony Mint, with the existing original Chinese restaurant owners operating out of that same restaurant. It's like that kind of absurdity is beautiful. That's like that's the shit that you don't understand. That's also the intent. It it's not supposed to mean anything to anybody else. It just is, or it's it's done out of necessity. I've lived that life. I felt that way when we did Sambar or Co. And the list goes on. But it's harder to take those risks. It is much harder to take those risks after you've been in it. And I hope we see more of that. I mean, I'm reminded of of like a V Steakhouse in, in New York. It got eviscerated. And this opened up, I think, in 2001. John George, the great John George, opened up a steakhouse that tried to reinvent the steakhouse. One thing I've learned is that's something you don't do because Americans like their steakhouse the way there is. And we should talk about steakhouses in general because I do believe America is basically a steakhouse country, no matter what we think or how diverse we are. And no matter how many different foods we make, I think the intent is the same to, to, to follow a, a lane of efficiency and, and, and sensibility in the kinds of restaurants and foods that we eat. And I also want that shit. Listen, to, please understand the inherent contradiction and hypocrisy. I love that shit too. I want the same. I'm basically telling you, I am just as much of the problem as anybody else as a diner. But this was a restaurant that reinvented the steakhouse and it was just different. And there's plenty of articles about it. I thought it was fucking awesome. We need people to take swings. Lord knows I took one with Nishi. There's tons of restaurants, even restaurants like in New York, like Ninja. We had ninjas coming out of the walls. I love that shit. We need more of that crazy shit. We need more people doing things you're not supposed to be doing than just following the same social media algorithm, the same things that the food blogs and the mainstream food media are telling you what is acceptable. And I guarantee you, going back to Anajak Thai, people are going to try or at least thinking, I got to just do a pop up. Or my version is, I'm going to do, you know, I have a a Korean restaurant and I'm going to do whatever I want to do with in the back, pop up this, pop up that again. Like, I think that's just making the same painting with just different colors. Right. I think the intent is something that was unique and original. And that's what we should be trying to do is doing something that doesn't make sense. Ultimately, one of the reasons why I love spoon by H was a restaurant that didn't make any sense in the fucking world. No sense whatsoever. It was totally fucking absurd. And I think there's some kind of correlation when you're able to eat that kind of food with the restaurant that's trying to serve that intent of trying to do something true and original, <coughs> even in a world where you can't really do anything original. But what I mean is that intent can be original. And it doesn't have to be groundbreaking whole cuisine I think your intent, your purpose to make your restaurant can be original. That's what I'm basically saying. That's what I want to eat. It doesn't have to be the best restaurant in the world. You're not trying to get number one ranking. That's also a problem. Like if I were just starting out right now, I would not do a tasting menu restaurant at all. I probably wouldn't be opening up in New York or Los Angeles. I'd probably be doing Florida or Texas um, because of the no state tax, because of city regulations because I would might I, I'd be able to do something different. And and I think that's what's going to happen. I, I'm excited to see that. I think it is happening. It's not a surprise that I think my bet, Texas and Florida, become like these dining hotbeds. 
in ways that they haven't been. And it's not just going to be Austin and, and I mean, I don't know about Florida outside of Miami, but who knows? It's a, it's time for us to sort of encourage the next generation or even the next generation of cooks or chefs or diners to, to, to sort of be on the look or be more open to doing something that they probably wouldn't do. And that's hard because it's restaurants are extremely expensive, time intensive things, which is why I'm also thinking like, maybe we need a new structure of how we do restaurants. I don't know, but I I don't know if I'd start out, I'd open up a restaurant number one without owning the real estate. And I would probably go to an area where I could own, own the real estate. And by, by owning the real estate, you're able to take more chances, put it that way. And I would raise money not to just to um, <laughs> do a restaurant. I would try to raise money to um, own the real estate. Trust me, I wish I was able to do that. I know that's easier said than done, but we need these impossible benchmarks to work from. I still don't own my real estate as much as I'd like to. But I think another thing that we can do from a creative point of view is creating more in a vacuum. And I think we got to find the balance of what you share and what you don't share. But I reminded when we opened up Seobo in Sydney, um, I wonder if Sue Wong Ruiz still has a photo of the of the of the whiteboard we had. We listed every single thing we were not going to do. Anything that anyone else was doing, we were not going to do. If two or more people in, uh, in the world were doing something or a technique or a dish, it was off the agenda. And it was it wasn't just things like no foams or shit like that. It was like I know remember one of them being like, we will not import any food. That's hard. It's really fucking hard to do something like that. But those limitations is what, is what made, I think, that restaurant so wonderful. It was so hard to do, but we weren't allowed to do any repeats. Uh, eventually, we put on the bun and stuff like that. But as a starting point, that was a really nice thing to work from. Also, when we did Major Domo, we did something very similar. What we were going to do, what we were not going to do. And I think having some cr- creative limits is, is important. Having access to everything out there is very, very bad, I think, creatively speaking. And going back to what Ivan was saying about looking at menus as a young cook in in New York in the 90s, that's what we used to do. There's something lost in getting all of that information at your fingertips and not actually putting the work into getting it. Um, So I'm, I'm still perplexed that is, is it as simple as that, that uh, if there's no fee, like so there's no work in getting some kind of knowledge, that it's not something that is memorable, that it actually doesn't have use. It's not activated. It's basically like getting all of that access to knowledge is effectively like an athlete that has a lot of fucking talent, but no work ethic, right? No drive. So that's sort of what I feel like right now that all of us are in this period where we have all of this knowledge and all of this access, but it's basically talent. And if you don't match that talent with something else, it's basically useless. And I think that drive, that work ethic was getting that knowledge. And there's something about acquiring that knowledge in the old school way that, you know, hopefully we can still do an old school way without the old school ways, if that makes any sense. So I'm going to share with you another moment, <laughs> culinary moment that I, I use as a benchmark. And the last time I think I really felt this way in awe, tr- truly 
when I, I when I sat down and think about game changing, life altering food moments of like what the fuck, it was it was when I was in Istanbul. Chef Mehmet took me to Zubir Okabasi. We've talked about this restaurant a lot. But I just want to explain this as a kind of restaurant that should be a template for us. I mean, it's, it's, it's a meat house, okay? It, it is uh, serving kebabs. It's everything that is counterintuitive and contrary to the rational, reasonable, efficient world of how we view food and restaurants today. Um, it just is. Also, there's no way that it could ever exist in America. Number one. Number two, it's a dangerous restaurant. And I mean dangerous is you sit down at the charcoal pit where they're grilling kebabs. There's one downstairs and there's one upstairs. And the father and son are making the, the kebabs. And the other family members are in the kitchen making bread to order. And everything's done to order. You know, it's like a sushi spot if kebabs were done a la minute. And you're sitting around like it's a teppanyaki grill like Benihana. But instead of this griddle, you have all of this charcoal raging in front of you. It's so hot that your forehead is sweating. It is fucking hot. And the charcoal, the logs of the wood, they're, 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 they're shooting embers out. That's what I mean. It's dangerous. You can never do that in America. That's just never going to happen. It doesn't make sense. I was like, this doesn't make any sense. It's almost uncomfortable how hot it is. I'm also sitting down and you're sitting in communal tables around the fire pit. And you look at the, the room, it's filled with locals, uh, some tourists. It's got a, a vibe and an energy of celebration. People are drinking Rocky, um, the anise flavored liqueur, there's beer. The room just smells of heavenly roasted meats. And I knew this was going to be good. But when I say it was a moment, I was like, and I had this, I had a couple of these moments in Istanbul. I, I didn't expect it to be. You know what I mean? Like I knew it was going to be good. Mehmet was taking me to his local shop. But it was, this restaurant is a perfect mix of structured, reasonable, efficient restaurant stuff that we do mixed with the absurd the emotional the dangerous the suffering all of these things it was a perfect merger of those two that's what i mean it was a it was the last restaurant that didn't make any sense but was supposed to make sense if that made any sense it was a good hybrid of the two so again the danger was there and the the food comes out and and you could see that the love that was being put in the food. Everything was made to order. The son is prepping stuff for the, the father and they're putting the kebabs on, forming it by hand. They're putting it on the grill and you're being served all of this meze that's been co- coming out of the kitchen, an open kitchen. It, it just feels like you're in someone's home, a home that has this raging charcoal fire pit in front of you. And it's delicious. Everything's delicious. It just is. It's just everything. Well, is it delicious because of the environment? Is it delicious because of the, the technique and, and experience? All of these things are true. And I'm happy. I'm beyond happy. 
I'm also with good friends and I'm sitting next to a table and I know I've talked about this. I'm talking about it again, sitting next to a doctor that trained in America. Um, I think he trained in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and he was there for many years and he's come back to practice in Istanbul and it was his birthday it was his two daughters and his wife. And it's the kind of environment where I'm sharing food and sharing drink with each other. Our table celebrating with them. We never even met them. Like there's communal dining, but then there's community, right? There's a sense of community. That intent of, it wasn't even the restaurant's intent. It was just there. It was unfucking believable to dine and break bread with somebody I've never even met before and to know it was their birthday and to know that they were thinking about sending their daughters to uh, school in America. And the reason they came there is because he had a mission for um, changing some, 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 somehow medicine could be done in, in, in Turkey and the need because of the, the humanitarian efforts. Like all this, this guy was an unbelievable person. You could just tell this guy was a very, good person doing good things and it was his birthday and he's like try this try this liver have another bottle of this oh have oh you had this year you should try this one from this region of the country and i look around it feels like everyone's having the same thing there's some dates i don't know if i bring a date there <laughs> because like it was so smoky but it was fun man and the food was outrageous and i couldn't wrap my head around how this restaurant exists I can't, and I was like, why can't this exist anywhere else? And it dawned on me, I'm so happy that it doesn't exist anywhere else. I'm so happy that I've talked about on this podcast to you that there's no place else in the world that this restaurant could exist except in Turkey. I mean, I, I guess I already put some limitations where I don't eat certain things until I get to go to that restaurant. Like, there's no reason why we should have this experience in every single planet, part of this world. But I think about that restaurant as the kind of restaurant that feels like I just listened to Ode to Joy. It left me in awe. I was awestruck of this family and what they were doing. And it was simple, yet complex food. There was conviviality and joy and sharing and community. I just thought it was fucking awesome. Maybe somebody else doesn't feel that way, but for me, it was like a benchmark. Now, it's my job to go find these restaurants. I believe that they're here. I just got to get, get off my ass. So it's a nice reminder that I have to do the work myself. I have to, you know, maybe create these restaurants myself. I don't know, but you know, it's not like I'm in the kitchen anymore, but I'm going to try to find these new places. I, I say that it's hard to do. It takes time. It takes money. But I'm sure they're out there. And that's what I wanted to say is that jadedness, that cynicism that I have, I have to remind myself it's there because I love it so much. It's not because I hate it. It is because I love it so much. And I do say I'm an optimist, even though I'm a, considered a pessimist, because I want to be wrong about my feelings, about my opinions. So I want to be moved with food. I want other people to have that experience. I want other people to take these huge risks without falling on their ass, you know, and that pain and suffering. But maybe that's how we get there. I don't know. But in a lot of ways, we need to start doing things that don't make sense. 
you know, and I was thinking about the other day when someone asked me if I was going to open up another spot that was independent of anything. If I was like now today, Sands, if I was going to hope that someone was going to open up this restaurant, and I'm saying this because it's like, God, do I want to open up this restaurant? But again, it'd be a restaurant that has no menu. It would be an invitation only restaurant. Okay. Um, and I, I'm taking this from a lot of what's happening in Japan, and I know their clubs are happening in America right now, but it, this isn't a club for um, financial means or exclusivity. The only way you can dine there is if you're a good diner. Simple. Simple as that. Are you a good diner? And there's no photos. There's no reviews. And if you bring a bad diner in, you lose your membership. You can only eat there by making a reservation. You know, when you're there, there's no phone. There's no nothing. When you make a reservation, I'm, ta- I'm stealing all of this from Japan. You make a reservation and you don't confirm it. You just show up. You're there. It's a contract to the team there. And it'd be nice if it's like maybe just the counter and maybe a couple seats, I mean, a couple tables. So you're looking at maybe 12 seats. It'd be nice just to do five or six, but let's be honest. I think, you know, it, let's just say it's five to 12 seats and there's no menu. You, you, when you walk in, you see your menu, you see a nice piece of fish, you see some seasonal vegetable, you see some nice cuts of meat and you see some rice, you see some eggs, you see something else. And that's it. It's like you're cooking in a short order and they're just cooking it for you. Again, I'm 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 paraphrasing really some of these meals that I've had in my life, the best of, and, and merging it into one thing. But that would be nice, right? Where I I can only it, it's like a celebration, and it's also like no pretense, and it's live cooking. It's a raw some raw fish, maybe it's a salad, and some slices of meat, and then some rice with some pickles. That would be an unbelievable restaurant. Maybe it's a right of like meats that are wrapped in some. I don't know. Okay, maybe it's not that. Maybe I, I talked about this already maybe uh, a few months ago about maybe it is just like a smokehouse where I'm slicing different cuts of meat and serving it omakase style. That'd be fucking sick. I mean, there's a lot of different ways, but I think part of it is an idea that doesn't make sense on paper. And also, you know, I, I recently talked to a friend who was thinking about what they wanted to do and what they wanted to open up as a restaurant. <laughs> I, can't, I don't want to name say anything more because people might know who this person is. And they were at a loss for like what they were supposed to do, because in a lot of ways, they were like, everything's been done. What are you going to do? And if you do something new, will people appreciate it? Will people understand it? How do you say something new? How do you have a different intent? I don't really have the answer, but it's happening. And I think the answer is it's, it's, it's what you think it is, not what anyone else thinks it should be, if that makes any sense. And I need to be reminded of that myself as well. So, not being said, stay tuned for another podcast. Give us five stars, however you rate this, and uh, we'll talk to you soon.